ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, hello. Happy Monday and a very happy new year to you as well. Welcome to the first Country Hour for 2024. Hope it's going to be a great one for you and for your family. I'm Selena Green here to bring you the Country Hour again for a brand new year. Today we have a full hour for you and lots coming up, including a bit of a crystal ball look over what this year might bring for our grain growers and a check-in on a project to collar and track feral animals, see what they're up to. Managing the pests is important in that area because of the impacts on um, livestock, uh, particularly for me, I study the wild dogs in particular, that their impacts on sheep production uh, can be massive. So it's important to make sure that we're doing the best we can with their management and our control methods are tailored to the environment. That's coming up very shortly as well. If you want to call or text in today, perhaps let me know how you're starting off the new year. My talkback number is 1300 222 891 or you can text me on 0467 922 891. But first up, it's been a mixed bag once again for grain producers with one of the earliest harvest finishes ever. What else did the industry's state body campaign for in 2023 and what are they looking at for 2024? Well, Brooke Nindorf caught up with the CEO of Grain Producers SA, Brad Perry. It's been a really big year, uh, Brooke. We've uh, we've effectively had two harvests in, in one year, so sure there'll be plenty of grain producers out there who are looking forward to uh, having a, a well-earned break um, over this festive period, although, um, yeah, a lot of them will, will have the boom sprays out, no doubt, as the, uh, you know, as the roast turkey goes in the oven. So, um, yeah, it's been really unusual, I think, with, uh, with the weather, but, yeah, been, we're coming off a record year and then uh, what looks like a, an average year, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's been a, been a huge year, really, for grain production in South Australia. I guess it sort of started quite promising, but then that rain didn't come at the uh, the right time. And, and as you mentioned there, the, the early harvest and uh, and then obviously the rain we've seen the last few weeks as well, holding people up. Yeah, that's right. I, I think a majority will, will start to be at the uh, the back end of, of those still going now. But yeah, certainly we uh, we got rain at the wrong time, um, whereas probably in 2022, 23, we got we got rain at well, we got rain at all times, so the, the right time and the wrong time. But yes, it has held up harvest this year, although a majority finished early. So yeah, it's been a bit of a, a mixed bag, but hopefully that rain uh, will hold us in good stead for a, a good start in uh, three or four months. Brad Perry, what are some of the, the major projects that GPSA has been involved with in this year that uh, that you think have have really helped those in the industry? Oh, I think the one that most will point to and, and the one that will point to is obviously the uh, the harvest codes. So a lot of advocacy work um, went into that over the year to ensure that, that uh, grain producers could continue to use um, current practice when it comes to that fire cease harvest threshold. So, you know, that was that was a huge campaign and, and we'll continue to work on that as well. We need to continue to make sure that grain producers can uh, can do do business the way they do business. So we'll, we'll keep uh, advocating on that. Issues such as uh, spray drift, which uh, has sort of reared its ugly head as well. So we're set up a, a working group and uh, and that's going to be a big focus for, for 2024. 
Um, probably some of the other highlights that we've had, we've had a, a couple of connectivity projects with uh, Connected Farms being the, the big one on the Air Peninsula. Um, so that's really showed how you can fill um, those black spot gaps through that project, and, and that's had a lot of uh, discussion uh, on farms. Uh, we did the Worst Grain Roads campaign as well, which we'll, we'll continue to lobby for those roads. And, you know, we haven't seen tangible uh, action as far as money invested, but we certainly know that those ro- roads have moved up up the uh, priority list within the department. So I think we're making some really good inroads there. Um, we did a number of sustainability projects too with, uh, with Flint Pro and the emissions side, Cooper's traceability, and we've also got nearly 40 grain producers involved in the uh, Soil Carbon Innovation Challenge. So uh, just a bit of a snippet of, of some of the projects and probably the other the other one too um, that we're involved in inputs was a big issue this, this year. We... Uh, spoke to the ACCC about some concerns around um, fertiliser contracts, so there was a, a bit of uh, bit of movement and action in that space too. So that's just a brief summary of uh, some of the things we've done, Brooke. Just back onto the, the code of practice and, and, and harvest time, how important was it to get that done for farmers heading into harvest? Oh, that was huge. So that was something where, you know, it was a proposal uh, that was put to us that was going to change uh, the way that, uh, every farmer adopted um, the code. So it would have impacted every grain-producing um, business. Uh, and as we saw through this harvest just gone, it actually worked really well again. So, you know, we had days where weather was coming in, but because grain producers could uh, continue to reap under local conditions on their property uh, and doing so safely, a lot of them were able to get uh, crop off um, before rain came. And again, still following everything safely, and otherwise, we were uh, circumstances in the state. We would have had a blanket ban, and, and I think we would have seen a huge impact on a lot of the, the quality of the grain that didn't come off. So, you know, just a really good example of why it works in South Australia. And heading into 2024, will roads be a, a major topic that you'll continue to look at and work on? Yeah, roads is always going to be a major topic for us. I don't think there can ever be enough money spent on roads, particularly in our regions where, um, you know, our, our grain is being carted. It's really been about changing that message and getting that message through within government that, you know, it's not just about vehicle numbers on these roads. We really need to consider the amount of grain and the economic dollars um, that are moving on these roads uh, to get investment in them. So we know that uh, within the department, some of these roads that are in our worst grain roads campaign have got a lot of attention, a lot more attention than they had for many years, and they're, they're moving up the priority list. For us, it's about trying to get those roads up the top of the priority list and get some uh, some money invested in them and make them safe for everybody that uses them. That was the big thing from grain producers, uh, truck drivers, and and the community was safety. Um, but there's also that um, you know economic productivity loss as well. So for us, roads is going to continue to be a, a big focus. Any other projects that, that stand out that you'll be working on for the the new year? Oh, definitely spray drift. So um, you know with the weather conditions at the moment extra rain, um, humidity around it, and it's been quite windy. We know that, um, you know, the potential for spray drift is there. So the GPSA is putting in a, a lot of effort in this space. We're going to try and do as much as we can to try and do something different from what's been done before. We know that a majority of grain producers do the right thing when it comes to applying agrochemical, but there's a small uh, number that don't, and we need to make sure that those people know that they can't keep doing the wrong thing and putting others at risk. So, uh, and also spraying away their own money. So that's dollars that you know they're 
they're spraying off target. So um, we're hoping to really get that message through. So that's going to be a big priority. And the other one is um, sustainability. So there's still an ongoing focus here. You know, whether you, whether you like it or not, uh, we've got you know governments, banks, um, markets are all asking for sustainability credentials and baselining and a lot of data and information that we potentially don't have at the moment, um, but we're going to need going forward. So that's going to be a big focus for GPSA uh, next year as well. Brad Perry, do you speak to much? Uh, do you speak to many farmers about what they're potentially going to be putting in for, for season 2024? There'll be m- many changes, uh, more people putting in GM canola, for example, or they look at more barley um, now that the tariffs have been lifted with, with China? There's a really interesting discussion point with farmers uh, around the, the barley and the, the Chinese market back on board again. For some it'll work, but generally the feedback is that I can't see uh, for the next season a, a huge uplift in, in barley being planted for that market. I think the benefit of having the Chinese market back on board is um, they'll pay a little bit more than where we were sending it while that tariff was in place. So potentially that's a a little bit better income for grain producers, but I can't see there being too much change um, across the board. It looks like there's been, uh, and this season was reflective of it, a lot more lentils going in. Um, I think that trend is probably going to continue. Um, And canola has been pretty steady, pretty solid, so... My understanding is, yeah, a lot of lot of GM canola has been going in the ground over the last couple of years in South Australia and, and having really good results. So I imagine that's going to continue. I, I can't see that um, changing anytime soon. That's the CEO of Grain Producers South Australia, Brad Perry, and he was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. It's 14 minutes past 12. Well, there's been an ongoing project in the western region of New South Wales to trap and collar feral pigs and wild dogs. It's been work that's been going on over the past three years to try and better understand the numbers of these pests and the movements of them in the area. New South Wales DPI Research Officer in the Vertebrate Pest Unit, Dr Dean Smith, he spoke to Lily McEwer about the importance of this project on the back of severe stock losses to these wild species. So the project started many years ago as discussions with landholders in the western region. They were experiencing stock losses but uh, felt that they weren't really getting on top of the issue and they were losing faith in the uh, management methods. So the idea was to get out there and to have a look at what the animals were actually doing, in case it was wild dogs and feral pigs, and to get some collars on, get some cameras in the area, some camera traps, and to, to see how they responded to management and where they were moving in the landscape. At the moment, what are you seeing in terms of pest animals in the western region? What are the numbers looking like? The numbers are pretty steady at the moment. The cameras pick up a relative indice, so it's just sort of animals per camera per day. But the wild dog numbers were definitely up from talking to landholders when we started, as were the feral pig numbers. With feral pigs, you'd expect them to drop away as drier times come. How do you go about trapping the animals and putting these collars onto them? The animals are trapped just in the normal way, foothold traps, and then collars are put on them. We take a whole bunch of information about their size, sex, their colour, all those sorts of things, um, and then we let them go, start tracking them immediately. The collars are GPS, so they send information up to satellites, and we can track where they're moving in real time. And these GPS collars have been used since 1989. What has been observed over this time in terms of wild dog behaviour? So the 
DPI have been using collars since that time to track where wild dogs are moving, but it's mostly been on the east coast. Um, this is actually the first project of its type that's happened in western New South Wales. So it's been a really interesting project to see the differences between the east coast uh, animal movement and the wild dog movement in the western region. The main differences so far have been the space use. The western division dogs seem to move a lot further. Why do you think that is? I guess obviously it's so vast out here. Yeah, I think that it is just that space is so much bigger and it means that the footprint of pest control might need to be also considered at that scale. So with the collaring, I guess this sort of landscape is really well suited to tracking the movements of wild dogs. It's uh, incredible to, to see how they're moving. The, one of the actual main aims of the project was to monitor the interactions between the wild dogs and the toxic baits being placed in the area. The idea was to know exactly where the baits were being placed in the landscape and then we could line the fate of wild dog in the area encountering those baits up with which bait was taken. And we actually had that happen a few times with the dogs that were collared through this project over the last three years. How effective have the control methods been? What have you observed there? Uh, well, we have a very limited information in, on that front. We were able to collar 11 dogs. We were hoping for 30, but uh, it was during that very wet period. It was very hard to get out and put collars on wild dogs. We have a few confirmed instances of watching the dogs walk along bait lines where we were able to get exact bait placements from the landholder and see how the dogs interacted with those baits, how long it took them to take a bait, and then uh, how long after that the dog actually died. What was that time frame of when they had the bait and when they died? It was within a couple of hours, usually, yeah. What will that be used for, that data? The information will be used to try and figure out the optimal way of controlling animals in the area, wild dogs in the area. So looking at whether or not bait placement can be optimised or bait timing can be optimised to better target dogs. As a research officer with the New South Wales DPI Pest Research Unit, Dr Dean Smith, and he was speaking there to Lily McEwer. You're with the South Australian Country House, Selena Green, with you on this Monday, the 1st of January. Well, let's stay in New South Wales, and this year's Kangaroo Population Survey shows a 20% decline in numbers over the past 12 months. The Environment Department's latest kangaroo quota report, it estimates numbers have gone from almost 12 million in 2022 to more than 9.5 million this year. The department says high rainfall and flooding likely played a big part in the drop. Well, Broken Hill reporter Bill Ormond spoke to Far West Grey Lachlan Gall about the report's findings. The decline in, in certain areas is reflective of seasonal conditions across far west New South Wales, so it's not a surprise or, or nothing to be alarmed about. Could you sort of explain those conditions for, for those who might not be aware? Seasonal conditions across far west New South Wales are quite variable at the moment. There are areas that are looking quite good and other areas that are very dry. For example, Fowler's Gap's only had 112 millimetres of rain this year, and that's well short of their average annual rainfall of 241.9 millimetres. So the areas that are short of rainfall at the moment are probably going to be seeing less roos in the landscape. Could some of these roos be just heading further east towards uh, areas where they've had more rainfall? 
I most certainly roos move around in response to seasonal conditions. For example, here at Langawira, we had a thunderstorm about a month ago over one very small area, and that's absolutely crawling with kangaroos at the moment in response to the bit of green feed that shot up after the rain. Having lived out at Langawira Station north of Broken Hill for a number of years now, I imagine you've seen kangaroo populations fluctuate quite a bit over the years? So I've been out here for more than 50 years and over the journey we've seen times where you flat out finding a kangaroo and uh, other times, for example, in the lead up to the 1720 drought back in 2016, there was a tremendous number of kangaroos in the landscape. And what were your thoughts on how the survey was conducted? Kangaroos are surveyed from the air every year during the winter and if the survey goes over a particular area on a cold, windy, overcast day, it can be practically impossible to to see any kangaroos. So that may skew the numbers for that particular area of the survey downwards. And the other part of the equation is that the aerial survey is not a blanket survey of all of New South Wales. It's only over the areas of New South Wales where the commercial kangaroo harvest is undertaken. And even then, it's only small sections of the entire area. That is Far West Grazier, Lachlan Gall there, speaking with Bill Ormond. Australian Society for Kangaroos President Nikki Sutterby spoke with Romy Stevens about what the latest report means for the native species. The whole report has uh, some very disturbing figures in it, which is not surprising. We've been warning about this for a long time. It's very easy for them to hide these catastrophic declines when you look in these large numbers at a statewide level. But if you actually look at a local level, both red and grey kangaroos, eastern grey kangaroos are at critical densities across most of the state. And these critical densities were defined by the Murray-Darling Commission report in 2004, where they defined that uh, shooting kangaroos at densities of less than five per square kilometre was putting them at significant risk of extinction. This drop has come off the back of a period where numbers went up quite substantially. The department says that flooding is likely playing a part in the drop over the past 12 months. Do you think that's a fair reason? These animals have just been hammered by an industry for profit, for their meat and skins. The fact is they're overestimating their numbers. They're manipulating the data to make it look like the numbers are remaining the same or going up, where in fact the numbers are crashing. Anecdotally, we hear from graziers and farmers across large parts of New South Wales that kangaroo populations continue to boom. What's your response to that? As a rule, farmers are only happy when there's no kangaroos there. Unfortunately, they see them um, as a threat. So they're never going to admit uh, the numbers uh, are low. But we only need to look at this quite a report from New South Wales, which is very disturbing. Uh, and we're seeing massive catastrophic short and long-term declines across most of these killing zones. Have you seen improvements in the management of kangaroos since the New South Wales inquiry report was released more than two years ago? No, nothing's come across my desk to say that they've changed anything for the better. According to this report, you know, across 
the most of New South Wales, I think there's a couple of areas where they've suspended the killing because of these disturbing figures. But most of the, the zones and most of the regions are just, you know, killing as usual. That's Australian Society for Kangaroos President Nikki Sutterby there speaking to Romy Stevens. If you'd like to read more about this, there's an article online right now and you can find it on the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, let's head to the Weather Bureau for the first time this year. Jenny Horvat, hello and a very happy new year to you. Happy New Year to you, Selena, and to the listeners. So what is the weather bringing us for the start of this new year? Yeah, look, today we're looking relatively dry, even though we've got a band of high-level cloud that's moving across from the west. It's quite cloudy over sort of Air Peninsula and pushing across now York Peninsula, Kangaroo Island and into the more central districts. Not expecting any significant rainfall with that one as it moves through. Could see a little bit of shower activity near the WA border and couldn't rule out some thunderstorm activity out in the west as well near the WA border during the course of today. But otherwise, yeah, we are generally looking at dry conditions um, for today. A little bit milder to warm along the coast but still grading to hot inland and very hot above the far north through there for today. As we continue on into the week we get a little bit of uncertainty with the forecast. Things are a little bit unstable so we do have a trough Um, over WA that will start to come across from the west on Tuesday and we also have another trough that will be near eastern border districts as well on Tuesday so having a bit of a look through there we could see that shower and thunderstorm activity extended uh, probably to around Sejuna on the Tuesday and we'll be watching the storms up in the very far northwest there they could get some damaging wind gusts at times during the afternoon and evening on Tuesday. Along our eastern border with that trough coming across from the east Again, we could be seeing some showers and thunderstorms coming across um, during the day through there. Um, we'll be watching in the far southeast um, across the border, like really across the border, could be seeing some severe thunderstorms again on Tuesday in that part of SA. I feel like most of the um, severe weather associated with the storms will be on the sort of the Victorian New South Wales side, but um, they will be watched, so just take care with those ones. We could see some damaging wind gusts. With those storms in the southeast, as well as some um, heavier rain at times, as well as the potential for some hail. As we move more broadly into the middle of the week, we'll see the trough probably kind of combining with an upper feature coming through. So for Wednesday, couldn't rule out thunderstorms pretty much anywhere across the across the state, but more likely to be seeing them across western parts, so the northwest pastoral district and the west coast district, and again up in the north. West there, looking at potentially seeing some damaging wind gusts during the afternoon and evening on the Wednesday. Trough moving more broadly to the northeast, but again, quite possible to see storms um, throughout the state, except for maybe the southeast on the Thursday, and again, maybe some gusty thunderstorms across the north on the Thursday. Maybe starting to see a little bit of a reprieve on our eastern border districts on Friday, but that instability still remaining on Friday across western parts and including Air Peninsula could still be seeing some thunderstorm activity. Another trough and upper trough forming over WA, so we will start to see those showers and thunderstorms moving more broadly across the state over the, the weekend before contracting to the eastern border and clearing early next week. So a pretty unsettled period coming up with 
quite a bit of uncertainty, unfortunately, as we head into the middle and late part of the week. So we will be watching this space. But looking at cumulative rainfall totals until the end of Friday. So broadly across the state, we are looking at less than um, five millimetres, but we are looking at the possibility of five to 15 millimetres with the thunderstorms, mostly across western and eastern parts. We couldn't rule out some higher totals with the thunderstorms, especially across the western parts. So it could be seeing falls of up to 15 to 40 millimetres at times, though it will be remaining relatively dry across the northeast of the state there, Selena. All right. We'll get to keep an eye on there. Thanks, Jenny. Yes. Thank you. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, the upper western district, a partly cloudy day with a medium chance of showers in the west, slight chance elsewhere, and there may be a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. For the lower western district, also partly cloudy, a high chance of showers in the afternoon and evening most likely, and there's a chance of a thunderstorm. For both uh, districts, overnight temperatures will get down to the low to mid-20s with the daytime temps in the mid-30s up to 42 degrees. It's just coming on half past 12 here on the South Australian Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. I hope you're having a great New Year's Day so far. Whether you're listening back at work today, right back into it for the start of the new year, or you're just taking it easy today, having a bit of a day off. Hopefully not too many sore heads out there. Coming up on the program, do you love almonds? Apparently Australians do. We eat around 1.3 kilograms of almonds per person per year, if you average it out. And that's growing, which is big news for our almond industry. You'll meet a man who loves almonds so much, they call him Dr. Almond. I mean, some of the highest yielding orchards in the world are here in, in Australia. Uh, four ton consistent orchards. It's, it's not, I would say, overly uncommon. I mean, it's uncommon, but it's more common here than you see in, in California. And by far compared to Europe, you're you're almost doubling the production here on average. We hear what Dr. Armand has to say about Australian almonds. Also coming up, have you filled up with seafood over the Christmas New Year break? Australia produces a lot of seafood via aquaculture, which requires a lot of fish food. So who makes it? So that is the sound of, of pellets dropping into the water. And we can see these little barramundis pop into the surface and enjoying their lunch. Yeah, what goes into fish food? What indeed? You'll need to stick around to find out. Uh, hello on the text line to Peter from Bullaroo. Peter hopped on there to say, Selena, I was, well, this morning I was a bit like Father Christmas going ho, 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 cutting a few weeds. Hopefully good weather for you to get out amongst the garden and the weeds there, Peter. It's a job I certainly have been putting off I need to do. For sure. And hello to Sean in Mount Gambia, also on the text line. He says, Hi, Selena. Happy New Year. I went to hang up my new calendar that I bought a few weeks ago, and it was a 2023 one. Not sure how that bodes for the new year. Uh, Sean, well, you have to go and get yourself another new calendar. Hopefully, you got that one on discount. And that was one of my last jobs to do before I headed off to bed for an early night last night, was to uh, switch over the 2023 calendar for the new one. 
Uh, if you'd like to let me know what you're up to on this New Year's Day, that text line is 0467 922 or the talkback number is 1300 991 if you'd like to give us a call. Well, first up on the show, uh, we've been taking this time of the year to have a look back over 2023 and some of the bigger stories coming out of our regional areas of South Australia. So today we'll head to the southeast and check in with Elsie Adamo in Mount Gambier about some of the big stories from her region. While there were many big rural stories in the southeast over the past 12 months, a few have stood out. If you can think all the way back to the start of the year, you may remember that Australia was going through a hot chip shortage, with damaged potato crops in Victoria leading to the problem. The shortage highlighted some problems in the potato food chain, which, if it was hit with bad weather, had very little excess produce to cover the shortfall. Pleasant Park spud grower Terry Buckley back in February explained why different potato types couldn't be used to fill the shortage and when the problems all began. Well, there's crisping potatoes, there's French fry potatoes, which is your hot chips, and there's fresh market potatoes. And now they are so different, they might as well be potatoes, onions and carrots because we very rarely cross paths. They all have specific varieties and those varieties are owned by the various companies that we grow them for and then they're grown in different locations and they just have different qualities basically they're obviously the french fry ones are long and thin the crisping ones are round and the supermarket ones obviously have to look very nice it's not this spring we've just had it's actually the spring before that was where the problem happened we didn't get enough spuds grown particularly in tasmania and then they had a terribly bad thunderstorm through the middle of the potatoes in Ballarat in January, all of which reduced the yields. So then they had to get into the storage sheds earlier than you'd like, and then the storage sheds have run out, and that's why the problem always shows up around Christmas time. And now the companies have started on the fresh New Year's crop, so the problem should go away in the next month or two. South East spud grower Terry Buckley. Farmers in the southeast had a tough fight against slugs in 2023, with the pest populations rising to numbers not seen in decades around the region. A parting gift from the triple La Nina weather event, it was caused by three consecutive wet spring seasons, with the explosion in numbers at their peak back in June. Hadley farmer Trevor Rayson knew he would be in with a tough slog against slugs that season, but was still surprised by the amount seen in his crops. As we planted our early crops, especially canola. Slugs have been emerging from the ground uh, constantly and in enormous numbers and that's been reducing the canola uh, seedling numbers. That's a problem because in some cases they've uh, wiped it out and need, needing re-sowing but uh, in most paddocks uh, there's some damage. Uh, canola can compensate for that. Canola is uh, not a bad compensator and uh, so you can put up with some reduction in numbers, but certainly you know, if it's wiped out, you have to start again. So in our wheat, uh, we've been really surprised this year. Wheat generally is fairly tolerant once it's emerged, but uh, there's a lot of stripping of the, the um, early emerging leaves, the first leaves. That damage is causing ill thrift in the plants. I think in the early 2000s, uh, there was a year, maybe 2001, when we uh, did have difficulty with wheat, but I haven't seen any serious damage to wheat uh, in, in the last 20 years. So it is a surprise to see the widespread damage in the district to the emerging wheat crops and the young wheat crops that's being done at present. Hadley farmer Trevor Rayson. 
The earliest start to the rock lobster fishing season was continued and made permanent in 2023, with the boats now able to head out from September 1st every year. Originally put in place after a ban from the Chinese government on Australian lobster, the move was meant to provide fishers with additional time to catch their allocated quota and better align catch timings and supply with export market demand. Robe lobster fisher Paul Regnier, like many in the southern zone, supported the change. I think the majority were, were in favour of it. As, as it's turned out, it has been a real bonus for us starting in September. And look, we hope it continues from, from now on. It just gives us a bit more time to, to market it and, and move our craze. As, as it's turned out in the last three years, uh, we've started very well so um, with catches and size. And has there been any, any concerns about an impact on the breeding season for craze that it, that it might affect overall numbers? Look, initially we were probably a little bit concerned about it, um, but as it's turned out, with all the information that we, we supply back to, to our scientists and, and to PERSA, as far as we can see, we're having no impact at all. It's... Um, it, it's yeah, business as usual. Rope lobster fisher Paul Regnier. While fishers were hopeful at many points in the year the lobster trade with China would recommence, the news never came. And while the price was up from 2022, it didn't make the big improvements fishers were after. Andrew Ferguson, owner of lobster retailer Ferguson Australia, was sceptical if the Chinese market would be as strong as it was originally if it was to return. It's, it's sort of, I've, got, well, I've just been to China a couple of times lately and, and I just don't see China the place it was three or four or five years ago. So some areas are struggling a bit and maybe, you know, it mightn't have a, a huge effect. I know there's a lot of other product going into China that's never there before to, to replace our product. So, you know, we've got to sort of find, a, find ourselves when we go back there. So it might not be quite as good as we all were expecting and, you know, it might not, you know, have the price jump that we do expect. Andrew Ferguson from Ferguson, Australia. Livestock prices were low this year, with many graziers in the southeast having to watch the value of their lambs, mutton, deer and cattle halve since the start of 2023. But relief came in recent months, with prices slowly starting to increase due to decent rainfalls around the country and increased confidence. The southeast especially has ended the year feeling more confident, with South Australia having the highest rise in the Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey for the spring quarter. Of South Australia, the southeast was the most optimistic about the future. Bull Lagoon lamb and cattle farmer Kerry Garris said this year had felt like a roller coaster, but it is now starting to feel like a corner has been turned. I think generally pretty happy with the way things are tracking. I think confidence-wise, yes, we haven't received the the, uh, returns on our animals that we would have over the last couple of years, but they're still okay. They're not groundbreaking, but then we're covering costs. So I think I think generally we're pretty happy. They've had rain in the north. We've had rain. I think in general we would have to be pretty confident that prices will, will go up into the future. They have to because our cost of production isn't going down. So uh, for us to stay viable, prices need to return to not the highs that we have seen, but certainly continue to be on, on the up, I suppose. Farmer Kerry DeGarris from Bull Lagoon. While there were many ups and downs in the region in 2023, there is still optimism about the limestone coast, with many eager to see what 2024 brings.
Our reporter Elsie Adamo with that look back at the southeast biggest stories of 2023. It's 20 minutes to one. Well, the almond industry has grown rapidly around the world in recent decades, and that includes here in Australia. You're about to meet a man who knows so much about almonds that he's known as the almond doctor. David Dole is a man at the forefront of an agricultural industry that continues to change the landscape of horticulture around the world. Working in California, he's relocated to Portugal and consulting to the biggest almond growers in Australia. The almond doctor says the industry is continuing to change. Warwick Long caught up with Mr Dole, a Go Farm's ambitious almond orchard north of Shepparton. I'm originally from the Midwestern U.S. and I moved to California for graduate school. And then after that, I started working in the almond industry. That was in the mid-2000s. You know, back then, California was roughly 360,000 hectares of almonds and, and Australia is about 40,000. You didn't see the expansion up in New South Wales or, of course, in this area as well. With that, it, a lot of technical training, did a lot of trips around the world. We were paid under industry salaries, so we we're allowed to do a little moonlighting. So then I started doing consulting work, feasibility studies in Europe as well as Australia, and saw a lot of interesting projects going worldwide. So since then, we've seen almond acreage in California reach about 600,000 hectares. And of course, in Australia here, 60 to 70. In Portugal, where I now reside, we went from about 1,000 to around to about 30,000 hectares over that period. And so what brought you to Portugal? Well, so I wrote the feasibility study for the project. Uh, investor group approached me and said, would you be interested in going out, seeing, checking out this project? Would it work? Wrote the feasibility study. And when I came back, they said, oh, what about the job? Would you be interested? And I looked at, you know, after being in a technical role, technical research role for 12 years, I said, well, this would be kind of interesting to kind of dive in, seeing how to operate at scale. It's one thing making a recommendation. It's another thing learning how to apply it on a farm. And I also realized it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I think I was driving to work one morning and I called my wife and I said, you know, if we don't take this, I'm going to regret it. And so it really became a, a decision of which one I would regret the least because I really enjoyed the job I was in and ended up in Portugal. Can you explain the, the growth in the Portuguese almond industry. Has that mirrored what we saw in terms of the, the growth in Australia in sort of the decade prior? Yeah, I would say it's more like 30 years ago. Um, started off with, you know, roughly traditional type plantings, especially in Europe, wide density, no irrigation. They built this irrigation project in the late 1990s and into the 2000s. And that opened up about 160,000 hectares of irrigated land. And with that, a lot of olives went in, some irrigated almonds started going in. And we saw essentially this kind of mom and pop, small parcel kind of start with aggregation and then move into more corporate side of, of investment. You know, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting thing to see kind of this aggregation corporate kind of farming move into these cultures. But, you know, before then the land was relatively unused everything was in three to four hectare parcels it's actually just sitting there idle growing weeds or growing a little bit of cereal nothing made money and seeing um, some of these olive investments as well as almond investments come in putting people to work it's really nice i mean i think one of the things i i see that you see mirrored across australia is you you've taken land that most people view as cereals or are other types of of broad acre crops that have relatively lower employment on farm because it's mostly mechanized and you see that transition to a higher valued crop with more employees that that are working that ground we took a farm that 
had one employee and we're now hiring eight and it provides a lot of return back to the community. And so that brings me to your work in Australia. So you started in California, living in Portugal now, but you're here, right? How much work do you do here? Yeah, so um, when I was in the university, I was had some clients here. When I moved to Portugal, I negotiated to keep them. I always say this is like my workation. I come over here and I visit. I have uh, less than a handful of clients. We have a couple, two to three clients. Uh, and just providing a little bit of trust and verify in many cases, looking at their projects, making sure that they're following best practices, working with them to implement new technology, different ideas, uh, fact check some of their thought process. You know, almonds are just like any other agricultural crop. We, we're battling in a world market. We have to figure out how to keep our OPEX down. One thing I enjoy about working in Australia is that we're not the highest cost producer and that's California. So all we have to do is figure out how to work with the teams and get their costs under California and it can be a profitable industry here. So that's fascinating. Often in Australia, due to labour costs and things like that, we often consider ourselves one of the highest cost areas for, for most commodities that we grow. But in almonds, the highest cost producer is still California. That's correct. So what what plays into the favor here? Of course, you have your high water costs, your high labor costs, uh, but still your honeybees, which are a requirement in almonds, are cheaper. Uh, you have a lot more farms at scale, which allow you to dilute out a lot of those major capex expenses. And you just have a good growing climate. You don't have certain pests that are problematic in California. You have conditions that allow for nice kernel size and good yields. I mean, some of the highest yielding orchards in the world are here in, in Australia. Uh, four ton consistent orchards. It's it's not, I would say, overly uncommon. I mean, it's uncommon, but it's more common here than you see in, in California. And by far compared to Europe, you're, you're almost doubling the production here on average. That is the Armand doctor, is it Dr. Armand, David Dolan. He was speaking there to Warwick Long. Uh, a few texts that have come in. One of those is uh, in response to an article... Uh, an interview if you're listening before the 12.30 break. Uh, we were talking about the number of kangaroos or what the latest survey is saying about kangaroo populations in New South Wales being on the decline. And uh, one of the people you would have heard from was the president of the Australian Society for Kangaroos. Diane is uh, on the farm today. She's texted in in response and says she disagreed with quite a bit of uh, what the president had to say. Uh, she said she didn't feel she answered the questions about floods or droughts affecting kangaroo numbers. Diane's text reads, People like her should not be in these jobs if they don't understand agriculture, as farmers do not only want roos dead. They play a role in weed control, the same as other native species. Diane's text goes on to say, The roo population does need to be closely monitored for their survival as well as controlling overpopulation. Uh, and hello to our texter who just texted in to say what well, they're up to on this New Year's Day, and that's spraying out at Poochera. So hopefully the weather is uh, conducive to that today, and Happy New Year to you. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, Australia's aquaculture industry produces more than $2 billion worth of seafood each year. That's a lot of prawns, a lot of fish. Feeding them is big business. Who makes the fish food and what goes into the fish food? Well, Matt Brand went to Australia's largest barramundi farm to find out. G'day, I'm Matt Brand, and today I'm at Australia's largest barramundi farm. It's located near Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory, and each week it produces around 100 tonnes of fresh barramundi for the market, with more than 5 million fish on this farm at any given time. That's a lot of fish. 
and they eat a lot of food. So today I'm actually here to meet Dr Richard Smullen, who is from Ridley Corporation. It's the company that makes the fish food. Hey Matt, um, I'm Dr Richard Smullen, work for Ridley Aquafeed. Uh, I've been working for Ridley for 20 years now and uh, we have I think about 20 mils um, in the country. We make feed for more or less every livestock animal you can think of really, chickens and uh, sheep, cattle and of, of course fish and prawns which is uh, what we do. And uh, yeah, we, we, we're branching out all the time. I think we, we make a lot of dog food as well. And uh, they even make food for laboratory rats, for zoo animals, everything. So If an animal a needs a pellet, Ridley can do it. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. It's, it's, it's quite amazing, really. It's, uh, and, and like in the aquaculture world, you know, it's like uh, there's always a farmer somewhere going, oh, I want to try, uh, try and grow dewies or I want to grow uh, whiting. Can you make a feed for that? And you get that all the time. So it's, it's quite diverse, to say the least. <laughs> so that is the sound of, of pellets dropping into the water. And we can see these little barramundis pop into the surface and enjoying their lunch. Yeah. What goes into fish food? Well, fish food is uh, it's a, it's a quite a diverse set of raw materials. If you, like, if you start from the beginning, you have to have a pellet. And to get a pellet, you need to have a starch, like a shell, if you like. So we use starch, which is usually wheat or something like that. And that creates a framework to build the pellet around. Because at the end of the day, you have this little pellet that's either going into a prawn pond or a barramundi um, pond or a salmon cage. And uh, it's got to carry all the nutrients for the fish. And it has, a, a, if you like, a matrix, which is made up of starch. So the first part is that matrix made up of wheat. And then uh, you have protein. That protein is what the animal uses for putting on muscle for its bodily functions. So historically, the protein was really just 100% fish meal. Because fish meal in those days, when I first started, like it was about 30 years ago, in those days, the diets were made up of just fish meal, fish oil, which was the energy source, and wheat. Huh. And, and, and that's, you know, that matrix to hold it together. And then there was vitamins and minerals. Um, and nowadays, you know, we're using a lot more, uh, a, a, big, a bigger range of raw materials. So Such you, as? Well, if you look at the protein, the fish meal is uh, slowly, uh, we're using less and less fish meal as the diets become more sustainable. So we are using vegetable protein, which is the first thing. So in Australia, we have a lupin crop and we use dehulled lupins. It's a very common uh, protein source. And that's very digestible for fish. And then if you, you, you then can look at uh, land animal protein. So historically, you've got an alarm going off in the background there. <laughs> I hope that's not us. <laughs> Welcome to the fish farm world. Yeah. Um, so historically, um, you know, you look at that product, like land animal protein, was, um, was a waste product. And now it um, goes through nutrient recovery and it's treated as a high value raw material. And it's really looked after. And you, what you create is like poultry meal, uh, meat meal, uh, which is a and, and feather meal, which is um, very very digestible and uh, very high quality. And what we have is a circular economy product, which is, if you like, a byproduct of human food. And we're then taking a waste, the waste of that, because you know it's basically the frames which we don't eat. Yep. And then we process that and recover all the nutrients and develop a very sustainable circular economy raw material. And 
does a pellet for barramundi differ to pellets for Atlantic salmon? Yeah, so if you like, it's, um, it's the difference of like a chicken and a duck. They're both poultry, but they both have different nutritional requirements. So a salmon, for example, tends to want to, has a much higher fat diet than a barramundi. So in salmon, you tend to have, you have a similar amount of uh, fish oil to barramundi because that's the requirement of those animals. But the energy is just a, it's a source of fuel. And so we can use vegetable oil or, cano- or, or poultry oil as a fuel that the animal needs to burn. And, um, you know, different species uh, have different, if you like, uh, energy requirements. So salmon have, tend to have a higher energy diet, so more fat in the diet than a barramundi. Oh. And so it strikes me that your company would watch global markets like, like farmers do, keeping an eye on what the wheat price is doing absolutely. and the soy price and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a commodities group within, within Ridley Corporation that are probably one of the biggest buyers of grain in, in Australia. And they, they very carefully watch things like canola prices and, and uh, wheat prices because, of course, it's not just fish food, it's... It's poultry as well, yeah, um, and, and other other um, stock food, and so um, they're monitoring those prices. Um, and then when you look at fish meal, uh, fish meal is a very uh, very restricted uh, raw material from a point of view of um, the governments uh, in countries where it's where the fishing takes place control the quota, and so that, that's in order to stop overfishing and to maintain the stocks. So we have a sustainable supply of raw material. And so they will restrict uh, the fishing and uh, there'll be a quota. And if the demand is higher for that quota, then the price will go up. Goes up. And then everything follows. So if you have a very bad soya crop, everything's all linked up. If you have a very bad wheat crop, so that's why a lot of raw materials have gone up. And that's why, you know, normal consumers see this in the price of food uh, generally is going up a lot at the moment. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and we're speaking to Dr. Richard Smullen from Ridley Corporation. We're at the Humpty Doo Barramundi Farm, and we're learning about fish food and what goes into it. It strikes me as an industry that is always innovating, always looking to to improve, do something a bit different. And I understand people like yourself, Richard, looking at the possibility of insects more and more. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's not just insects, but that's that's one of them. I mean, you know, fish eat insects you know you, you know when you, if you go fishing fly fishing is yeah is, you're using an artificial insect and uh yeah it's like one of these things that over the years people have started to say well can can we make can we grow insects can we grow insects for animal food and and human food even and uh so now there's a whole industry uh that's building building up um globally and uh and it's starting in australia australia is a long way behind the rest of the world uh, but they're growing insects. Black soldier fly is the most common. And uh, the black soldier fly is then fed a diet which meets the nutritional requirements for, in, our, in our case, for growing barramundi or prawns. You know, so um, we've been working for quite a while uh, with manufacturers of insect meal. And um, it's, it's a growing industry. Mm. It's, it's in the infancy at the moment in Australia. And, but it's definitely a product which uh, the animals will grow very well on. And we have algal oil now, which is very common. Algal oil. Al- algal oil. So it's basically they sure. grow algae and extract the oil from them. And it has very, very high omega-3. And so that means we use less fish oil and we can use algal oil now. Oh. So 
and, and 20 years ago there was none of that it, it was very fringe fringy thing you know and now we 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 uh, got people growing seaweed not only for human consumption but for use in stock feed and animal feed yeah to reduce the methane yeah even. yeah exactly yeah. yeah so there's all sorts of innovations happening in the feed ingredient space is is um, amazing i mean ridley itself we work with csiro we developed a bioflock uh called novak and that's um we've now improved that and that's being fed to uh, prawns and in australia now all the farms are using it and um you, know, you get improved growth improved health you know and um we're now looking at export for that raw material so that was an aussie developed uh, raw material uh, and an Aussie company has taken it on and commercialised it. And, and to uh, be sent to farms around the hopefully, world. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, it's just starting, yeah. So we, we've got farms in the Pacific Islands who are using it now and um, it's, it's becoming an exciting place. So that, that raw material has been 10, 15 years in development and that's the problem. It's, you have all this innovation, but it takes a long time. You know, you have to test it, you have to make sure it's, it's uh, safe to use both for for the animals for and the, the end consumer the animals mm. the end consumer for the, the people who are making the feed um, but it takes time aquaculture in australia can i get finally your thoughts on on how it's going and what the next five ten years might look like <laughs> um okay when i first started it was uh you know this farm where we're at home to do now I remember standing with Bob Richards at the far end of the farm, right down by the Adelaide River there, where all the crops are. Um, and it was a little tiny feed shed, and he had about, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred tonnes of barramundi. And, and now, nearly 20 years later, he employs about 150 people. They've built this massive farm here, um, bringing jobs to the, to the territory, ancillary jobs as well, such as feed companies, you've got packaging, you've got engineers... You've got people with ice makers, you know, all being used. And it brings a huge, it's not just a farm, but everything else that's around it. And um, that's what we've seen, that growth. So aquaculture is, you know, the, the fastest growing sector in agriculture in the world. So there's more, I don't know, not, not, not many people know this, but there's more farmed fish that are eaten than wild-caught fish in the world globally. You know, so that, that's... that's you know, tantamount to the growth of the industry, and and Australia is a tiny proportion of what's out there globally, and Australians eat a, a huge amount of seafood, and a lot of that's imported, and we could grow it all here. Dr. Richard Smullen from Ridley Aquafeed, and he was ending that report from Matt Brand. That's almost it for me for today. Thanks for those who've texted in to let me know what you're up to. If you're having a bit of a lazy day on this 1st of January, you've got some free time on your hands, might be a good time to hop on the ABC Rural website and catch up with uh, some of the great online stories and feature articles, some of the landline pieces from throughout the year that you may have missed. So that website is abc.net.au forward slash rural. I will catch you again tomorrow for some more country. The time now is just going on time for the one o'clock news. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. 
Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.